Psalm 17. So let us hear again God's word this evening. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Saviour of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Well, let us ask God for his blessing on his word and his help now as we look at these verses now. God of heaven, we thank you for your recorded word, Lord, that you have preserved down through these many uh, centuries. We thank you that we may read it in our own language, that we each have available copies to follow along with tonight. And we pray for the, the help of the Holy Spirit, the one who compelled David to write what he did, that that same Spirit would enable us this evening to, to understand and to take in and to apply in our own lives and wider afield what you are saying to us. So bless us, dear Lord, O God, and again, may we see the Lord Jesus in the pages of your word. We ask for this in his name. Amen. Well, the psalm that we're looking at this evening is one of five psalms uniquely labeled in its title as a prayer. You find them in Psalm 17, 86, 90, 102, and 142. So rather than us seeing in the title some sort of strange musical term mentioned like a a mictum 
or a mascal, and nobody's quite sure exactly what those musical terms means. This is simply a prayer of David's. And as with all prayers recorded in Scripture, whether they are prayed by David or by Daniel, or as in our home groups, we were looking at that prayer by Nehemiah, or by one of the New Testament apostles like Paul in the book of Ephesians we're studying in the morning. Paul has two prayers for us to look at. In reading them and studying them, they, they teach us how to pray. They teach us that when we find ourselves in certain situations, as the writer did, we are able to pray like them, to use their terms, to use their words even, to invoke the kind of things they prayed for in our own certain prayers. Here with David, from looking at what he writes, there appears to be two main concerns he has that drive him to pray. One is that he's being pursued by wicked and violent men, and we'll look at that later. Secondly, he's being falsely accused by them as behaving just like them. And so David appeals to God. He wants God to hear his just cause or his righteous plea in verse 1. David wants justice from the Lord. And so he cries, he pleads, he prays to God. He prays for a just and a righteous decision from God that will vindicate him before God and his accusers and will bring judgment upon those who are against him. We'll come to that towards the end. So first of all, who are these people who accuse and pursue David? It's interesting how in the Psalms of David, where he talks about being threatened or attacked, as far as I can tell, and do come and tell me at the end if you want to, where I've got this wrong, but he doesn't appear to actually name names, which is interesting. It's only in some of the titles that he, we get a sense of who it is he's talking about. Look across to Psalm 18, and there in the title, you see the name Saul. So that psalm's connected with Saul pursuing David and all of that. Now, whether it's a good thing, it's a commendable thing, not to mention his pursuers in his psalm, I don't know. Certainly not knowing who it is, and when it happened, doesn't help us in our exegesis. Although arguably not knowing exactly who it was, does help us in our application of it to our own lives. The ambiguity of it allows us to, to take this prayer and own it for ourselves and to pray it into our circumstances concerning whoever it is pursuing us, whatever that means for us, whoever it is threatening us, whatever that means for us. The ambiguity of, the, of this prayer is helpful in that sense. But David repairs, he refers to these people in various ways. Look at verse 9, for example. They are the wicked who do him violence. They are his deadly enemies who surround him. In verses 10 to 12, he describes their behavior and how they, they deliberately close their hearts to any sign of pity, any feelings of pity towards him. They close their hearts and yet they open their mouths to speak arrogantly against him. 
But these are people who have surrounded David. They are intent on bringing him down. He gives a very vivid picture of them like a young lion, each of them lurking in ambush, looking to catch him, looking to tear him to pieces. Remember, this is an ex-shepherd describing the kind of situation he faces, and so it's typical of him to bring language of the past into this present prayer. In verse 14, he applies a more general term to them. These are men of the world. That's the bottom line, arguably. However it is they act, whatever it is they do, whatever it is they say, these are men of the world. It may be that he is describing King Saul, how Saul hounded David, how he came after him across wildernesses. He pursued David, trying to kill David, accusing David of wanting to take the throne from him. It seems to fit King Saul again. There's a very vivid scene of Saul pursuing David in 1 Samuel 23. His troops are closing in on David, and David and his men are trying to hide from Saul in the wilderness of Maon. It says in verse 25, when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come. For the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went away, went against the Philistines. It's a very dramatic picture there. If you imagine in your mind, Saul has his hand on the handle, as it were, behind which David is hiding. And just as he's about to open the door, he gets a call, the telephone rings, and he has to walk away. And we, that was close. That's the picture here. They're chasing each other around the mountain, and just as they get close, there's a phone call. Saul, the Philistines are coming, and he has to draw away. But David is being pursued by such a man. Whoever it was David prays about, whatever the event was on his mind, this is personal. It's always personal, really, isn't it? Verse 9, he says, these are my deadly enemies. And yes, he had companions with him. Look at verse 11. He talks about us. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. These were probably his fellow soldiers. These were people who had come to join David and join forces with them, and they too are being chased by Saul's army. But ultimately, it's David who is their ultimate target. If they get David, the others will scatter. I think we can say the context then of the prayer is a form of persecution. We have just started our new midweek uh, series in 1 Peter just a couple of weeks ago. And of course, Peter's letter is written to persecuted Christians. Peter is wanting to encourage them in their suffering, encourage them to press on in spite of all that is against them. And as some of us shared our own stories of persecution, we learned that that people had been verbally persecuted. 
They had been mocked for believing in Jesus or believing in the Bible. People had been belittled for being associated with the church. That sort of persecution is bad enough, for sure. But for a believer, say, living in Nigeria, often the persecution will be both verbal and physical. Think of Yemen or in Laos where Christians are displaced from their homes and villages because they've been driven out and having driven first them out, they're then pursued through the jungles and if they're caught, they're beaten or they're imprisoned or worse, they're killed. In Vietnam, Christians are often accused of following an American religion rather than being a good Vietnamese Buddhist. But again, like David here, it is often the pastor. It's often the, the leader who is the primary target. Like in Colombia, where drug cartels target the pastors leading the work of getting users off the drugs the cartels are selling. If they kill the pastor, then their church's rehabilitation ministry often becomes too frightened to continue. And so it's closed down until a new pastor comes and they try again. This description, though, that David gives of being pursued and being surrounded, it's, it's worked out in many lives around the world, depending on your context. But of course, we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and how it was worked out in his life. You think of Psalm 22 and how it's described that what Christ faced. In verse 6, the psalmist writes, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths or they hurl insults at me. They, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Or verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. So similar to what David writes here. Clearly we can't relate to Jesus and why he suffered on the cross. His persecution, his quality of persecution was what only he could bear. Only the Lord Jesus Christ as truly God and truly man could suffer and atone for our sin. His suffering was a unique suffering for sure. But what he went through, how he was pursued, how he was surrounded, how he was threatened relates to what all believers will experience in some way. And what comes out of this is that Jesus understands. Jesus knows what it's like. It may be unique to each of us in a certain way. The context of it may be unique to where we are and where we're at. But Jesus understands. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to be somehow threatened. Even betrayed by a friend, Jesus understands. What a privilege, therefore. What a help, therefore, 
for us to be able to bring it all to him in prayer. Secondly then, how does David respond to this? Obviously his response is to pray, to take it to the Lord in prayer as we were singing earlier. But there are three parts to this prayer of David's that I I want to highlight this evening. First of all, he prays that God would support his innocence. It's interesting how at first reading of this psalm, it's, it's as though David is pleading sinlessness as if I have never done anything wrong. Look at what he says. Look at verse 1. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. I mean, even Isaiah couldn't have said that when he saw that vision of the Lord on his throne. And he says, woe to me, I have unclean lips. And yet David here says, my lips are free of deceit. Look at verse 3, you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. That's rather bold. Verse 4, I have avoided the ways of the violent. Verse 5, my steps have held to your paths. It sounds a little like the rich young ruler, the man who met the Lord Jesus Christ and who claimed to have obeyed all of God's law since his youth. It, it, it smacks of self-righteousness here. And therefore, if we think of this as a prayer to pray, it's hardly a good example of would it that we should pray for in a similar way. But David isn't being self-righteous. Rather, he is expressing his self-assurance before God. Remember, here is someone being accused of something. And so how he prays, the way he puts it is in that context of defending himself before God. He's, he's defending himself against the false accusations made against him. Lord, you've tested me. Lord, you know this is not how I am. You know, Lord, that this is not how I've behaved. It's so similar to how Job pleads before God in Job 31, pleading for his integrity. He's repeatedly saying in that chapter, if I have done this or have I have done that. In other words, if he's done what his three friends had accused him of doing and therefore that is why God is punishing him. And throughout that chapter, chapter 31, Job, like David here, is pleading his innocence in those areas. He's not claiming sinlessness. He's simply saying, Lord, I haven't done that. You know I haven't done that. It's quite a wonderful thing to be able to say that. Lord, search my heart and... Test me in this, you'll find nothing on me. It's something for all of us to pursue, as Paul did. Remember when he was being accused by the Jerusalem council in Acts 23, verse 1? Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul wasn't saying, you know, he was without sin. That's not what he meant, but he wasn't conscious, conscious of doing anything that they had accused him of. 
You see him in Acts 24, verse 16. There he is before Felix. He says, I always take pains. I always strive to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I wonder, is that our track record? Do we follow that same pursuit? Always taking pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I suppose, too, we can't help but think of another person who, as it were, pleaded his innocence with God. You think of the Lord Jesus as he hangs on the cross. There he is suffering for sin. And what can be heard through that, those, the darkness of that scene are his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's another plea here, a righteous plea from one truly righteous. A righteous plea to the God who knows all things, who knows as the criminal knew beside Jesus that this man had done nothing wrong. And yet, God treats his son as though he had done everything wrong. And yet it was our wrong that Jesus bore and died in our place. That we, through faith in him, could be made right before God. So David here is appealing to the one who knows all things, who knows the truth for him to judge whether or not these accusations are true. Secondly, David prays that God would protect him. He's appealing to God, verse 6, for he knows that God will answer his prayer. Do you see that? I call upon you for, you, for you will answer me, O God. What a confident prayer that is. Isn't it good to be able to pray to God knowing that I'm not just hoping, I'm not playing the prayer lottery as it were, but I know you will answer me, God. And so he prays to that God, he prays to the Lord that he would, look, wondrously show his steadfast love for him. What a beautiful expression there. What a wonderful way of David expressing how he wants the Lord to act. David knows that all who belong to the Lord are precious to him. He knows the Lord loves his own with a a unique love, a covenant love. And so he, he calls on God to show that particular love in a particular way, a wondrous way, a marvelous way. What way? Look at verse 8. Show something of that. Keep me as the apple of your eye. There's that wonderful phrase that the God-rejecting world uses in their common-day language. In other words, the pupil of the eye. I hate hearing stories of people having cataract operations. To think that somebody puts a scalpel into your eye is the most diabolical thing that could ever happen to anybody. The pupil of your eye, the most delicate, the most tender part the most sensitive part of your eye that you would cherish, that you would want to protect, that you would especially want to look after. That's what David prays God would do with him, cherish him. Take particular care of him. 
keep him particularly safe and hide him in the shadow of his wings. Where does that send us? Wings, under the shadow of someone's wings. Does not point us to the affection the Lord Jesus showed or he, he expressed as he approached Jerusalem. How as he looked at this city that was largely ignoring him, he had such affection for them, great love for them. He longed to protect them. Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the, the city that kills the prophets and those and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. David is certainly willing to be gathered in under the shadow of the Lord's wings. He is certainly willing to be kept and hidden from the wicked, from those who would act violently against him. Isn't this a wonderful prayer we could pray for one another? We hear of one another being harassed in our life as Christians. What a wonderful way to pray for the, the wider persecuted church. As well as praying that provisions would reach them, we could pray that God their Savior would show his steadfast love towards them in wondrous ways in such spectacular ways that would strengthen their faith in him, that would deliver them from violence so that they would see the length of their Lord's arm and that even some around them might see the living God and believe. Thirdly, David prays in verses 13 and 14 that God would act in judgment against his enemies. Arise, O Lord, confront them, subdue them. Lord, bring them down. There's a real sense of increasing insistence here in how David prays. Lord, rise up and act. Do it now. Deliver my life. Deliver my soul from the wicked. How? By your sword. Verse 14, by your hand. Now, how can we pray this prayer? How can we pray words like this for the bringing down of the wicked who might butcher, who not who might but who do butcher Christians in Nigeria? How can we pray prayers like this when the Lord Jesus calls us to love our enemies, Matthew 4, Matthew 5, 44? when the Lord Jesus calls us to pray for those who persecute us. Or think of how Christ himself prayed for the forgiveness of others. He prayed for those who rejected him, those who had surrounded him, those who had pierced him, those who had nailed him to a cross. He prayed for their forgiveness. How do we apply this Old Testament psalm within the boundaries now of, of New Testament ethics. Well, I'm going to go down a side road. I don't like going down side roads in a sermon, but I'm going to go down a side road here for a few minutes and just briefly say three things. And if you have more questions, read a book on it, okay? Because this is a big subject. 
How do we pray implicatory psalms? What's an implicatory psalm? A psalm like this, which clearly calls on God to curse, to judge the enemies of at least him or his people. Three things very quickly. First of all, these types of prayers are presented poetically, even prophetically. And therefore, sometimes the language, the, the wording does seem rather forceful. In actual fact, though, the working out of that prayer will be carried out by God, and he may well fulfill the prayer in a way that was not specifically asked for. That's the first thing to briefly say. The second brief comment is this. Psalms with this sort of language of cursing enemies or calling upon God's judgment upon their enemies, it's, it's far more from a position of moral indignation than a position of personal revenge. So when wicked men are looking to persecute God's people and cause them great violence, it's, it's much more a matter of how dare they do that. How dare they touch the very children of God rather than, Lord, get them back because of what they did to me. Thirdly, again, these are brief comments. Read a book on it if you want to explore it more. Thirdly, like God himself would prefer, we too should prefer that these people would turn from their sin and live. Think of Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. However, the assumption in most of these Psalms are that the wicked won't turn. Even here in chapter 17, uh, Psalm 17, verse 10, look at what it says. They have closed their hearts to pity. That's why he goes on then to talk of God confronting them, God subduing them. I would balance that though with Psalm 83, where the psalmist's prayer calling for God's judgment upon his enemies he does it intending that they would come to repentance and conversion. Psalm 83, verse 16, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. It's a tricky subject. I'm not myself 100% clear on it myself. At the very least, I think we can pray that their behavior would be stopped, either by them preferring, preferably coming to, to faith in Jesus Christ like Paul or Saul uh, did, who then became Paul the apostle, or by God intervening in the way that he chooses to use. We got an email from Christian Concern just on Friday there showing how God has acted in judgment. 
and there was no lightning. I don't think anybody dropped dead. But there was a charity, there is a charity called Educate and Celebrate who teach queer theory in schools. So much so that a minister who faithfully presented the Bible's teaching was sacked by their school. But God has acted in judgment upon them by cutting off their funding. So they're closed now. That's how God has acted in judgment. And maybe that's how we work these things out. So the language of some Psalms calling for judgment could in fact be worked out in those sorts of ways. Here in Psalm 17, the language is that God would act in judgment against David's violent enemies. And verse 14, the commentaries tell me that it is extremely difficult to translate. It has a different version, a different translation based on your version of the Bible. Uh, David is either praying that his enemies and their children would get their fill of God's judgment, or David is stating how the wicked are content with all that this world would offer them, namely children and wealth. Or that whilst giving up the wicked to what the world offers them, God will look after his own and feed them and provide for them, even for their own children. Different translations giving slightly different views on what that verse means. I'm going to go with the blessed ESV because that's, that's the version I tend to rely on the most. And really, I go with it because the way the verse, because of the way the psalm ends, the way the ESV compares verse 14 with verse 15, how the men of the world, how unbelievers are satisfied. They're satisfied with what the world has to offer them in being able to, to reproduce and to leave their wealth and so forth to those who come after them. That's all they live for. They live for the now. You see, arguably, that's what the judgment of God looks like when our unbelieving friends, even sadly our relatives, appear content without Jesus, living comfortably, having a family, owning two cars, going on holiday once a year, and all of that sort of normal stuff that everyday people seem to be satisfied living with. That could actually be God's judgment on them, handing them over to this settled acceptance that this life is enough just to have children and be able to, to pass something on to them and so on and so forth. But we close this evening just mentioning how David would be satisfied. The men of this world would be satisfied to stay in this world as it is. But David, not of this world, verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. They say that Psalm 17 is somehow linked with Psalm 16. Both of them, if you see there, they end with a resurrection theme. 
Psalm 16 speaks of uh, the writer not being left in the grave, of being raised up, being spared the decay of death, which of course is why these verses are applied to what happened to the Lord Jesus in his resurrection. They're used in Acts 13, 35. For David, his satisfaction isn't in whatever amount of wealth he may gain or number of children he might have in this life. Obviously, those things in themselves are good things and arguably gifts from God. But David will be satisfied to awake or be resurrected and be in God's presence where he'll see God's face and glory. In other words, there is a sense here as the psalm ends. There's a sense that David recognizes that deliverance from his pursuers may mean death. That God may keep him. God may hide him and so forth by calling David home. It's a challenge to what we pray for for believers in places of persecution. It's a challenge to what it is we we think would be the better thing for them to stay here or for them to go and be taken home. Arguably, this is David's view of this. That when he awakens, when he rises from the dead, he would be in God's presence, be found in his likeness to see God. That would be the greatest, that would be the most satisfying thing for him. And is this not meant to be our greatest longing as a believer in Jesus Christ, whatever the form of persecution we might face? But to know, as we read earlier, we heard earlier, that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And then, and only then, shall all the pain of our past persecution be gone. And then will all the pain of the past be forgotten. May God help us work this out then in our lives and especially in how we pray. Let's pray now together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm. We understand, Lord, we know it's written so long ago, and yet the themes of it are so relevant for us today. We face forms of persecution that are different to Christians in other places of the world. But in principle, they are the same. They are relative to us and the the suffering they cause us. So we pray, Lord, that you'll remind us of these things that what we've heard tonight and encourage us to bring our burden, our grief to the one who understands what it's like to be accused, to be pursued, to be surrounded, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. To not nurse our pain, but to give our pain over to the one who understands. Help us to do that, Lord, and help our brothers and sisters to remember that as well. Help them, Lord, to to bring their difficulties, their situations to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and help them, Lord, to remember that, Lord, if it is your will that they should suffer so much so that they would die, help them to remember, Lord, that when they awaken, they shall be in your glorious presence forever and ever. Please encourage them in that, Lord. Help them even tonight. We ask for this in Jesus Christ. Amen.